I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind threebrotherscom have substantial, nuanced conversations about film. I'm Aaron Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Anton. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this month, we're donning our fanciest ascots and crispest chef's uniforms for a discussion of two indictments of the rich and powerful, Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery, which is streaming on Netflix, and Mark Milode's The Menu, which recently hit Disney Plus in Canada and HBO Max in the US. If you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple and Spotify, and recommend us to your family and friends. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? <laughs> Allie Barry. That has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? Oh, holy shit! Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. It's no surprise that filmmakers have their knives out for the rich and powerful these days. The world's wealthiest 1% have amassed untold fortunes over the pandemic, creating a kind of economic disparity not seen in a century. Not only that, but billionaires such as Elon Musk and Canadian grocery store tycoon Galen Weston continue to force their personalities into the spotlight, not content with their massive fortunes, but also demanding our attention and admiration as public figures. Filmmakers react to their surroundings, and so in 2022, we got several films poking fun at the world's elite. Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, but we're focusing on two more genre-focused affairs. Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, a whodunit and the first of several sequels to his popular 2019 film Knives Out, and Mark Milo's The Menu, a contained thriller about haute cuisine and the appetites of the absurdly rich. Both films pair nicely as genre satires of the wealthy elite. But let's start with Glass Onion, as it's the film that's made a bigger splash in recent weeks. Set during the pandemic, Glass Onion takes a bunch of rich and powerful Americans, played by Janelle Monet, Kate Hudson, Dave Bautista, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., to a private island in Greece. These are all old friends who are compromised to varying degrees by the relationship with Edward Norton's Miles Braun, the Silicon Valley billionaire who owns the island and invites them in the first place. They play a murder mystery game to pass the weekend, and soon enough, someone ends up dead. Who did it? Does the answer even matter? Glass Onion is colorful and clever, but it's also smug. Like most whodunits, the film aligns the viewer with the brilliant detective, Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc. But unlike other films, such as Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of Death on the Nile, which came out earlier in 2022, Johnson withholds information from the audience in order to flash back and parcel out new context and new motivations for when he finds it narratively convenient. We're aligned with the detective, but not entirely. The approach makes Glass Onion unconventional, even subversive, which seems to be the artistic obsession of Johnson as a filmmaker. The man thinks that the highest duty of art is to subvert. But this approach also makes the mystery something of an afterthought in Glass Onion. Unfortunately, in its place is some lackluster satire about our current moment. Johnson is also too plugged into online flame wars of Twitter to view his characters with any objectivity. Everyone is a caricature. But the specificity of his references to online controversies and Twitter sensibilities makes the film somewhat alien to anyone who isn't plugged into online culture's daily bullshit. As Blanc solves the mystery, we get an indictment to the rich and powerful, who are much dumber and vainer than we could have realized. But there's little surprise in the resolution or the approach. The film is as much targeted at the world's elite as it is an indictment of them. The kind of film that any of the characters in the film, save Miles Braun perhaps, could watch and chuckle at, thinking it doesn't apply to them. The menu is a different affair. Instead of a broad and sunny whodunit, the film is a ticking time bomb and a thriller that borders on horror. Several wealthy guests, including Nicholas Holt's rich foodie and his date played by Anya Taylor-Joy, head to a private island for an exclusive tasting menu of the renowned chef Julian Slowick of Hawthorne, played by Ray Fiennes. The film, perhaps taking a cue from the Hannibal TV series, is structured around the various courses of Julian's menu. We get on-screen titles for each course, and see elaborate demonstrations of the preparation and plating. 
the concepts, and the food skewer the rich guests and grow increasingly deranged until we learn that something sinister is afoot and that Julian might have no intention of letting the guests leave alive. The menu is a thriller, but it's also a black comedy with elements of satire. Each of the guests, aside from Anya Taylor-Joy's Margot, are something of upper-class caricatures. For instance, there are three rich finance bros who lack any appreciation for fine dining, a washed-up actor, played by John Leguizamo, who pretends to be friends with the chef, a vain food critic and her supplicant magazine editor, and so forth. Like so many horror thrillers, the film gives us reasons to dislike these individuals, and then delights in punishing them, hoping we'll enjoy the tension and release of watching such punishment. Of course, Julian himself is not above critique, and the film's climax brings him into the indictment of elite culture. No one is safe here. The menu is more focused in his critiques than Glass Onion, although it also doesn't push the satire as hard or try to skewer specific real-life individuals like Johnson's film does. The film is a thriller, first and foremost, forcing us to experience the mounting tension of these guests who are trapped in Julian Slowick's restaurant and forced to acknowledge their own helplessness and superficiality with each subsequent course. It's an exercise in tension and concept, although like so many thrillers and horror films, the logic of the situation grows increasingly tenuous over the course of the film. In comparison, Glass Onion is more narratively and logically consistent, but the clarity of its message is more abrasive than the focused tension of the menu. So guys, let's discuss. Uh, We should focus on Glass Onion first before turning our attention to the menu and then comparing the two films, expanding on some of the points I've raised in this keynote. Now, Anton, I'm not actually sure of your thoughts on Knives Out, but I do know you're probably the person who vacillates the most in respect to Ryan Johnson's films. You're the harshest critic of The Last Jedi, but you're also the biggest fan of Looper's 2012 time travel thriller. So what do you think of Glass Onion and Johnson's overall approach to the whodunit? I quite enjoyed watching Glass Onion, but the more time and distance I have from it, the more it just sort of recedes from my memory. And so it partly reminds me of the experience of kind of like um, maybe a more, much more low-key, less murderous version of that kind of a weekend where it's, it's a lot of fun um, to experience, but um, it just sort of fades and it doesn't seem all that significant. And I, I so I think that the film, for me, it, it, it ultimately is lacking as a satire and um, and as a whodunit. Um, actually, I think your keynote kind of clarified for me that I think it's not a great whodunit. And I think the first Knives Out is much better as like a mystery. But at the same time, I found Glass Onion almost more of an enjoyable experience. And maybe I'm just coming at it as kind of like a hangout movie. And I enjoy it as kind of a hangout movie, like albeit, right? A murderous, funny, you know, darkly comic one. But um, I like it in that sense, and I don't love it as a mystery story. I don't love the way it plays games with the audience, and kind of it's a smug tone towards all the characters. Um, and we, we later we can talk about the difference between the smugness of Glass Onion and the sort of what I would consider the more ruthless satire of the menu. So overall, uh, I liked it. I don't love it, um, and it definitely. Uh, I just don't understand people who think it's just like a brilliant commentary on today. What about you, Anders? It seems like from what I've read of people's reactions online and things like that, I'm one of the outliers who I prefer Knives Out to Glass Onion. I preferred the first film. I think I actually uh, I found the mystery more compelling. I found the performances uh, I enjoyed more. Some of it, I think, so getting back to your, your comment, Aaron, about the internet. And the way that this film in so many ways is a reaction to online culture and especially, as you say, sort of like, if you want to call it like elite liberal left sort of culture, right? Each of these characters clearly represents a type, you know, the the corrupt centrist politician, the men's rights activist, the self-centered billionaire, you may go on and on, right? The, the vapid fashion designer. Actually, I think Birdie might like Kate Hudson's Birdie might be my favorite character in the film almost. Um, But I think a lot of a person's mileage for glass onion might depend also on the cast and how much, how much you connect with the cast. Uh, Like, it seems like a lot of people really love, of the actors in here. I know Catherine Hahn has like a sort of now, I would say beyond cult following based on, I'm not sure exactly what. Um, is it uh, WandaVision? Is that why? It's definitely added to it. And, and I like Janelle Monet as a musician, but I'm not sold on her as a performer in this particular film. Um, I like Dave Bautista, but eh, you know, like I, I preferred the cast of Knives Out. I, you know, I liked Anna Darmus, I like Christopher Plummer, Jamie Lee Curtis, I, I like Don Johnson in the role, stuff like that, right? Uh, Chris. Evans is the ultimate smug character, but you're, you're meant to want to kick his teeth in. The The problem with Knives Out is, or sorry, not Knives Out, the problem with Glass Onion is that 
um, I think a lot of people's affection for the film, not just, uh, is not just based on like the memeability of the characters, but actually our preset uh, enjoyment of these particular kinds of actors in these situations, if that makes any kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so if you're not like already on board with like, Oh my goodness, you know, like so and so is in this uh, or this kind of thing. No, the cameos are a perfect example of that, right? Exactly. Like, Stephen Sondheim shows up, Kareem Abdul Jabbar shows up, and people are like, oh my gosh, they're so good. And it's like, Where, where's Sondheim? It's, a, it's the Zoom party at the beginning. Oh, okay. Yeah. And like Yo Yo Ma shows up at the party scene with Birdie. I didn't even, I didn't even pick up that. Because you, you're not the type of person who would notice. Yeah. But the target audience. So those aren't does. made for you. <laughs> but do you even find in the films uh, the way it does fashion versus the first Knives Out, right? Like again, it's it's not like a, a a course correction or a change or anything, but it leans into all these things that people were essentially like saying they liked about the first one, and it goes harder in terms of like color, in terms of like all the different fashion elements. So the movie's just it's it seems like it's more um, just trying to appease. A select fan base so in, you know but you know why right fan it's, service it's a, in some sense but just fan service for a non no but it's a netflix film like that's the key here i think what it is is that netflix doesn't make their movies off of p- conventional pitches they make it off of data quote unquote right mm-hmm. so they look into what their people are viewing the whole classic example that's always given is house of cards right they found that there was a giant overlap with people who watch kevin spacey movies David Fincher movies and this British miniseries called House of Cards. They're like, well, let's throw all three together and there's a series. Oh, I did not know that. So with this, Netflix gave Ryan Johnson hundreds of millions of dollars, this giant contract for him and Daniel Craig to be a, a several Knives Out movies. Like we're getting more, right? There's definitely a third one made. But you can tell that it's like, what are the things? It's like, well, okay, what's our target audience? And so we have to narrow in on this target audience hugely. So we have to create the cast of characters who are like, you know, the, the main characters of Twitter in the sense of you don't want to be the main character that day on Twitter, right? Because that means you're the person everybody's crapping on. And so you got like, yeah, the men's right activist, the politician, the designer, the brilliant scientist, the Silicon Valley doofus who thinks he's a genius. And the movie kind of, it assumes your position towards all those characters the second they're introduced, right? Just like it assumes a... um a weird kind of affection for the assistant character, Peg, who's literally a nothing character. Like I like Jessica Henwick as an actress. Whenever she shows up, I don't love her or anything, but her character is like, there's nothing. There's nothing. She just wears a bucket hat. I was baffled about this, like sort of Peg fan base. Cause I was just like, after the movie, like I didn't even recall that she was a character. Like I had already forgotten because she's so not important. Exactly. But the whole thing is that it sets up this idea that purely because she's an assistant character, who many of these people online have been assistants to annoying <laughs> celebrities or people in newspapers or so forth, there's an automatic affection for purely that the fact that there's a power differential, which somehow is supposed to be a positive quality for the character, even though the character has no qualities. Is this right? another Netflix phenomenon with like the whole Barb stuff and Stranger yes. Things? No, it season is. Season one. Yeah. And it and it's it's telling Johnson to lean into some of the impulses that I think a wiser um, producer or studio would would pull him back from. You know, it almost makes me wish that we had done as a a third uh, point of comparison to discuss would be uh, the most recent season of White Lotus on HBO. I but agree. In terms of yeah, how- my my wife was like, "Oh, you if you guys are talking about those two, you need to talk about White Lotus." I haven't I haven't watched it, but I know the, I think have you the both? best of the three. <laughs> have you both? Sorry, have you both watched it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's an assistant character in the most recent season of White Lotus that I think is handled in an actual characterization, not nearly as sim- automatically sympathetic, but actually more human and, and uh, touching in some ways. So, And who made, who's the, the main That's Mike White. Mike White. Of okay, like, yeah. uh, you know, the good girl in School of Rock fame. Yeah. yeah. Glass Onion. Another thing that I was not satisfied with is our detective. And like, don't get me wrong. I, 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 just enjoy seeing Daniel Craig in movies. I enjoy the Benoit Blanc character and I'm happy if they're going to make a third one. Like I'll, I'd be happy to see another Benoit Blanc mystery, but I'd rather have a more of a Benoit Blanc mystery because in this movie, mm-hmm. he essentially steps in and then kind of like steps to the side, except to reveal certain information and really like, right. The Janelle Monet, uh, twin sort of takes over as kind of like the mm-hmm. main detective. And to me, like that was, one, it's it's playing with the rules of uh, detective storytelling in a way that, okay, fine. Like, you're allowed to, you don't have to be a traditionalist, fine. But you're like, you know, after 
after the first Knives Out, you're like one of the selling points was that you sort of created this new um, character for Daniel Craig coming out of Bond where he can like play this character and he's quite enjoyable in it, even though it's kind of preposterous that he does this like Southern accent and all that and like everything he does, right? <laughs> he's Foghorn Leghorn, essentially. You got to keep your eye on the ball. Eye, ball, eyeball. I almost had a gag, son. Joke, that is. And then you kind of like, you sort of sideline him in a sense. Like he doesn't really do anything in this movie that's, that impresses me as a detective. Like there's no po- uh, Poirot moment where you're like, oh, brilliant, brilliant. The ben only Wong. scene is the time when it, it makes fun of it, where it's the murder mystery. He solves it instantly. If you got a theory, keep it close to your chest. Oh. You know, it's designed to be hard. This, this will take the whole weekend. You know, this is truly delightful. Oh, have we started already? Is it? Well, the murder hasn't happened. Oh, okay. but yeah, why not? As Watson said to Holmes, it was Bertie who planted a remote device on a crossbow in revenge for you stealing her signature Ren Diamond. Yes, and, the, and that's like, that was that that's was funny. a really funny scene. Yeah, but, but you know scene. why? <laughs> but this is again playing into the sensibilities, right? So Johnson, like, I don't want to psychoanalyze Johnson or any kind of this stuff, but Johnson really does lean into that idea of like subversion, um, flipping the hierarchy, is like an automatic good, even if there's no motivation beyond just the flip, right? So one of the things that made Knives Out somewhat novel is the idea of centering the character who's not only the murderer, in a sense, and but also the victim of this family and the lower class person. She's the main character, right? Anna Darmus in the first film. She's the one who technically kills Christopher Plummer, but she's also the one who's going to inherit the fortune. She's the one good person among all of them. And Benoit Block kind of quickly realizes that he has to align both his calculated solving of this mystery to help her, right? And he does it again here because I'm starting to get a trend. It seems like a trend of Johnson being fascinated with this genre of the whodunit and the idea of um, the brilliant detective. But he doesn't want to center the idea of a white person, a white man walking around and telling people what to do. So he has to get a woman of color to be the audience buy-in point and to say that ultimately their moral outrage or their like emotional investment in the material is more important than the cleverness of the white brilliant detective who's an external person and thus doesn't have to deal with any pain or trauma from the scenario, right? So it's like he's try- it seems like he's literally trying to rip apart something about the genre that he doesn't like and remake it but it's now seeming like a crutch and in a sense it's almost like a weird tokenization of Janelle Monet. and it especially is a little bit frankly I think it's almost like an exoticization of the character partially because of the narrative decision to keep us on the outside looking in with her mm-hmm. like the fact that the movie we're not aligned with, with her narratively because no, we don't we exactly don't get point of view he assumes the audience is not her character he assumes the audience is aligned with Benoit Blanc because he still assumes a sympathetic white viewer. But his target audience has already been trained the same way as him. Exactly. But it's also actually breaking the rules of the whodunit in a way that I find actually kind of annoying. So like the reason why I I, I reference Death on the Nile is like that's that is Agatha Christie. That is Kenneth Branagh playing it very straight in the actual mystery. And you're a hundred percent like if if Poirot knows something, you know it. There's never the only moment that he's one step ahead of you is before the final reveal. And that's specifically just to build tension. This movie, there's actually no reason why we don't know what Benoit Blanc knows, except for the fact that Johnson wants to manipulate us. Yeah, there's no thematic reason. There's no other reason. It's just he wants to be fancy. I mean, I, I guess thematically, right, part of the partly the movie is trying to sort of it's doing the subversion that you're you're commenting on. and It doesn't want to, you know. The whole movie is about, um, in part, sort of deflating the the centrality and self importance of these sort of these white men who think that they're brilliant. Yeah. Um, but this, but then what's interesting about Benoit and or sort of unclear is just that like you know Benoit seems to sort of recognize that as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for me it's like I if you don't want to have a you know a white southern man as your detective why do why do you have a white southern man as your detective like this is the thing you're like you could have a different person be the detective exactly (laughs) and and that's but that's that's that to me is always like so again like there there, there's some johnson films i love um but that when he makes some of these subversive choices i sometimes it's not that he wants to do something new he actually wants to take something apart 
in in that you know I'll have my moment of uh, Last Jedi, uh, and then we we don't have to keep going on it. But you know, like what I mean is like instead of just creating a different set of uh, characters that he wants to emphasize or something, he wants to take apart like Luke Skywalker. He wants to he has to undo the things. It's not about sort of creating an alternative or different. Mm-hmm. He gestures towards that at the end of Last Jedi with the the stable boy, with some of the other minor characters, but he'd rather dismantle it. But it's interesting because I don't, this isn't exactly the case that he was always in his films. And if you go back to some of his earlier play with a genre, what's really interesting about something like Brick is the way that Brick plays like, Brick is both like traditional and it, and it updates in different ways. It's not a subversion of aspects of the genre it's rather a transplant and that's where the yeah, it's novel comes in. it's novel it's not like it's not doesn't undo the film noir conventions yes it transposes it and then it shows an ironic level to some of the things but without like undoing he clearly likes the film noir stuff and he's but he fine clearly with likes it. all these things which is yeah. which is partly the puzzle for me of of, of ryan johnson because like you you like you clearly love star wars and you you clearly have affection for the tech detective genre, so it's it's it makes them both interesting, but sometimes for me uh, frustrating. For just a brief aside, is that I think that might be why Looper might be his best movie, partially because he takes a genre and where his subversive impulses actually are there to kind of correct the paradoxes. Like he he has a time travel movie, and he 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 plays with the subversion but purely as a means of tying off the narrative things that always bug him about other time travel movies. Like Looper is one of those films. It's a perfect loop that actually like blots itself out and solves the paradox in a way that other movies don't. And so he does, so he doesn't undo the concept, but he makes a solution that like satisfies himself. I in, haven't seen uh, brothers bloom. So I, I actually don't. This is just a Wes Anderson. <laughs> this is <his> worst movie, <laughs> but it's not doing anything. It's a quirky, but... uh, Wes Anderson style brother action comedy romp. Kind of. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned brothers of bloom because the other film that I watched recently that remind that could again be slotted into a comparison with all these films that we're talking about is the, uh, the recent British film, see how they run, which is oh, a, yeah. a murder mystery. I saw the trailer for that. Literally set around a staging of Agatha Christie's mousetrap in London. Oh really? And it's very much a meta mystery. So it like, it's also very self-conscious because all the characters, including Saoirse Ronan's, uh, and Sam Rockwell, police detectives, and uh, and Adrian Brody's in it as an American movie director, etc. That's why I was tra- like jumped by oh, mm-hmm. Brothers Bloom. Uh, Brody. I mean, it's a very, in some ways, a slight film, but um, it's it's not interested in subverting, but it is uh, attempting you know, sort of deconstructing it more as like a uh, a meta film. It steps outside itself and even brings in Agatha Christie as a character in the uh, the story. So because it's set in the fifties. So do you guys offhand remember uh, which, cause I mean, Ryan Johnson directed uh, episodes of breaking bad too. Yeah. He did Osmandias, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. That might be his best. Cause he's not writing it. Frankly, no, but he is <laughs> one of these people. Like I don't, I don't dislike him. Like, you know, no, like that's the thing. You're like, I actually, there's a lot. Of, I quite, he's like talented. He's um, clever. Yeah. But maybe, I mean, on the other hand, frankly, probably the reactions I'm describing right now are, are kind of what he wants in his way. He actually wants to frustrate some of the people. In the yeah, I this is why I like my some of my biggest criticisms of Glass Onion that like keeps me that keeps me in the thought it was fine. I, I don't have any active like dislike of it, but I didn't love well, it. So are you with thumbs um, up or thumbs down? Uh, I gave it like a slight, slight thumbs up. OK, but yeah, it's like really I, a middle, I, it's a I very middle it a like, a, like a three stars. Yeah. yeah, three out of five. Yeah. See, I'll give it a slight thumbs down because I find it unsatisfying as a mystery. And if you're going to present a mystery, like, like, can we just briefly? I think before we turn on to the menu, because there's a different. This is a good transition point, I think, slightly because one of the th- problems I have with Glass Onion, which I don't have with the menu, even though I don't think the menu is a perfect movie or anything, is that the menu seems dedicated to fulfilling the function of the genre. I don't think Glass Onion is dedicated to that function because the mystery is such a wet, wet, like it's a splat bluss. Like these, and it's only functions, it only functions in a satisfying manner if you are tickled pink by the notion of they're just dumb, these dumb people. It's so dumb. It's so dumb, it's brilliant. No, it's just dumb. These rich people are dumb. It's like, actually lots of rich billionaires are not dumb 
some of them are really smart. Some of them might be evil people, but some of them are really smart and talented, and that's why they're in power. <laughs> yeah, they're not accidentally there. Let's be honest. No, let's be honest. they're not just bumbling into fools. And it's, yeah, it's not the royalty end- we're talking about here. No, but <laughs> you're, not that, born in, you're not born into seeing No, but that, though, en- but that ending of like the way it resolves it, where it's like, even if you couldn't tell, guess that obviously Miles Braun's the killer from the beginning, just because it's the only way the theme works. But it's, it's also like the whole poisoning of Dave Batista. It's so obvious that Miles poisons him. He hands him the glass. If you're just paying attention, you see all the things out in the open. Like you yeah. see it happen. You know it's happening. And so for that you, kind of- Is it doing well, it not, in a way that it wants you to- No, exactly. It wants to just notice it because it, that's the point. But it's like, okay, so you've, you're actually not interested in satisfying the mystery here. So let's take, but then what are you interested in? You're interested in taking him down in a moral sense. Yes. And having all the other rich people who are slightly less worse than him, not quite as bad as him, turn on him and do that grand display of supposed cathartic destruction, which involves destroying the Mona Lisa, which I find like horrifying. Yeah, that, that's actually my least, it's my least favorite part of the movie. And it's almost enough to tip me into like a dislike. Because even yeah, other maybe, parts maybe of that, I, I was quite, I was quite enjoying the movie. Like that's the thing. But like, to me, but even just the montage of breaking the glass, it's so futile. I just think it's the, the kind of movie that like it wants, I think it wants me to think that that's like a, a, like the right choice and to me you're like i i don't know like i don't know if i could uh i don't like i don't even know even if you want to get even if you want to get miles braun like i don't the mona lisa is not miles braun's possession and this is no. what it confuses and this is what frustrates mm-hmm. me about that whole decision to it okay you can critique his access to it right that he's in a position the to, fact that the Louvre would lend it, him to it and they would lend it to him and he bailed them out and all that sort of stuff but at the end of the day, what she's destroying to get to him is actually the cultural collective heritage. It belongs of humanity. to us, everybody. So you're Not actually like it's it's an fu to humanity into yeah, all exactly. of the things we possess, rather than to Miles Braun. So you Sorry, guys have been no, I'm just talking like about the angry. the plot of the film and you know the structure, the story, and the characters, and, and how that stuff works for you. And maybe maybe you're talking me into thinking that. Maybe it was just after Christmas. Maybe I was just in a good mood. Maybe I was, uh, you know, having a good time with and laughing at a few silly jokes. But that's but, the target. That's the target. Exactly. But the more it's again, the more I think about the film, maybe I didn't love it that much. But actually, the one thing that bugged me was actually that compared with Knives Out, at least my perception is that it also visually as a movie just doesn't look as good. Maybe that's the Netflix effect really? you're talking about, Aaron. Mm-hmm. But I actually thought that it like – it's kind of like it's not actually all that inventive. It's pretty like it it doesn't shine the way even some of the moments in the Last Jedi do visually. Um, it does feel a little bit like a prestige TV show. Like let me let's be honest here. Like is is it much different or better than White Lotus? No, no. But I think White Lotus is like pretty well shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm just saying though, like it might actually be more cinematic in some ways. But I think the ni- the knives out, like sorry, uh, Glass Onion in particular. It's it's not even just it's not about necessarily just the camera work too, right? It's the whole mise en scene. The colors, is, yeah, yep, like, the color, the saturation. The, are, there's a sort the, of the, the layers of glass. Thing. The the yeah. open. So it gives it a glass. Flat, on, the whole glass. Onion maybe it's meant to be that way. I don't know. But I I just visually didn't enjoy it. I I thought Knives Out had better style. I preferred the costumes in it. I preferred the uh, all that. But you stuff also in get it. more um, of the mystery and, atmosphere yeah. in in the the big old house. Um, winter, more Greek island setting. Not like super cinematic. Yeah, but I so well, it can be. I, if you guys want to watch Mamma Mia, here we go again. You can see what, how you can make a Greek island looks lots far of fun. Superior too. No, no, but it is okay, far superior. The, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah, Mamma Mia, here we go again. Is better than the original and definitely better than Glass Onion too. I haven't even watched it. Okay, I'm not a Mamma Mia fan, but okay. What I will just say about Glass Onion is that I also don't want to discount um, the fact that it's nice to have a movie like that come out at Christmas time. And I don't actually think you should undercut like the value of that. Because if if we complain all the time about too much superheroes in the movie theater, like I would like more of these sort of mid-level where it's like the cast of characters, the actors are part of the draw. It's not doing a big action smash destruction sequence, or it's also not fantasy and it's not indie or like a small picture Mm It that mid-level. We don't get a lot of them. And it's also like, it's an entertainment vehicle that isn't oriented around um, just sort of superhero action. So I appreciate it for that. And uh, around Christmas, it's like, there's a reason 
it's good that it came out then because you're like, we we watched it with the family and it's the kind of movie where like, it kind of everyone enjoyed a piece of it, right? Right. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's also an aspect of that movie that is targeted to the exact same people who watch Marvel movies all the time and laugh at the Marvel type jokes. And there's a reason that Marvel movies are very popular among the same like sort of general demographic of people uh, that you can go watch. I don't know about that. I don't. Yeah, I don't know about that. I, no? I feel like this is this is targeted at the aligned people who think they're a little bit smarter than a Marvel movie. And that's kind of the, the kind of person who would dunk on a Marvel movie for never actually undoing the own genre it exists in. That's the, one of the common complaints that critics always have about Marvel is that, well, it couldn't break free of the Marvel formula. It's like, well, yeah, it's a Marvel movie. That's the whole point. Yeah, but Marvel movies, quote, subvert uh, superhero They never stuff. do, though. Quite a, but they never uh, do. The Taika Waititi's actually. Thor films try to. Yeah. Well, it they, pays, like the most pokes fun at it. In, exactly. Yeah, and then it just goes into a 30-minute action scene at the end anyway. I do agree with you, Anton, that this is why I don't want to be too unduly harsh on the movie. I'll be critical on the movie because the movie's fairly critical with the genre it's inhabiting, and I'm, I like genres being played straight. But it's also like the next Knives Out movie. I will watch it. And I, I don't, I'm not, I don't begrudge Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson from doing these. And I'm, I, the might, I might like the next one. We'll see. Like, um, it, I don't, I don't hate this movie at all. It's just, I don't really like it. <laughs> I don't think it really works. So we've, we talked about, we've talked about Glass Onion. Now I kind of, I want to transition this over into the menu because I know we're going to pick up on some Glass Onion points when we do it. Welcome to Hawthorne. Here we are family. We harvest, we ferment, we gel. They gel. We gel. He's not just a chef, he's a storyteller. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is going to be. You won't know till the end. Who are you? I am Margot. Why do you care? I have to know if you're with us or with them. Now, I know that you were a fan of the menu, Anton. So I to start this off, I'm more curious about Anders' thoughts about it. Like, did you like the menu? And even with with no comparisons to Glass Onion right now, just as it discussing it as a thriller and as a black comedy satire, like how did it work for you? I generally enjoyed it for the most part while I was watching it. I thought it was uh you know, it kept me it kept me involved the whole time. I li- I like a lot of the actors in it. I'm a very big Ray Fiennes fan. So for a lot of people who love like, you know, Benoit Blanc, I'm like, I'll watch a movie with Ray Fiennes uh, anytime, you know. Um, and, you know, I, it didn't overstay its welcome. It's a nice, tight, fairly tight film and focused. In that sense, it kind of reminded me almost like a, a kind of like an extended Twilight Zone episode or a uh, like, you know, something like that. Yeah. And I would still, again, I probably give it a similar kind of rating to Glass Onion. I'm like, thumbs up, but I'm not like blown away by it or anything. And it's one of those films where like, Again, the long the more distance I get from it, the more I like think about certain things. I I feel a little less like I'm like eh, I'm not sure about that bit. I'm not sure about the characterization of that character. I think mostly I just I don't feel it like deals with the motivations and things quite well. And even though again, it also thinks it's kind of like giving a critique and subverting, but it also ends in a very kind of cliched way. I mean, like I also the other thing is uh, I as I actually do quite like Anya Taylor-Joy as an actress and yet I actually don't think I think and it's actually mostly I think a script problem I think her character who's meant to be essentially the audience standing character if we're talking about these kind of characters in a film um, I never really quite was able to like connect and locate her within this world and, and and unfortunately she can't quite then carry it through the way you would need to really I think satisfy the film so I think I think it's a good film I think it's uh I agree that aesthetically, I think it's sharper, uh, literally like a, a darker, more, uh, you know, and the setting, it lends itself to that, you know, the way the modern restaurant design kind of looks and this, this sort of elite rich world. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's like amazing. All right. Counterpoint answer. No, <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a big fan of this Anton, so explain it. So I think what I liked about it was that uh, as to build off of say my letterbox review, um, for me it was a I, I I really appreciate when a movie um, has a concept and then actually fully executes it, fully commits to it. And what I really appreciated about this movie was that it stuck to this idea that Chef Slowick is having people to the island 
it's unclear initially what the the situation is, but you know, slowly we start to sense that there's something sinister going on. And then it actually goes through the motions of him doing his plan, right, to, to kill everyone and himself and end and, and, and things. And in doing that, it does not descend into just the 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 conventions of horror where it's just people running around screaming and being attacked. There's no scene where Chef Slowick is running around with a big chef's knife chasing people. And there's been brilliant horror movies like Barbarian uh, that came out that have stuff that's excellent, but then they descend into the stupid stuff that always bugs me. And this movie never does that. And at the same time, it retains, it retains aspects of the horror genre. I don't think uh, Anya Taylor-Joy is um, the best character, like casting for this role, but she does fulfill the purpose as being the final girl, which is what she is. And I think it's more clever and satisfying in some of its little twists um, than Glass Onion is in the sense of like, I really like the fact that Nicholas Holt, you know, it's explained that he, he was sort of, he knew about it and he still wants to commit to it all. But that part to me, I'm like, there's certain weird things though. Then if you, if you know that he, if he, if Tyler knew that he was going and what everything was going to happen, then like, why does he do certain things earlier in the film? Like, why does he take the photo and why does he like do certain things? It just, that some of the stuff, it felt a little bit similar, ironically to Gellass Onion, like in the rewriting of like the Andy Helen, like switcheroo stuff. Like, but, I, but I don't think he does anything. So one thing you'll notice and what uh, uh, my wife and I were talking about was that during the movie, we, early on, we were like, oh, how come like he's not bothered by like the person being killed? He's not bothered by those sorts of things. He's just focused on the food. He's enjoying his meal. And I actually think it commits to the idea that like um, Tyler, the character, just wants to have the most amazing dinner, fulfill his full dream of going to uh, Hawthorne, Hawthorne, having the most perfect meal with the most perfect chef that he so admires and and then just that's all he needs in life. I, I kind of like the character of Tyler because I actually think Nicholas Holt's a really good actor. In fact, that's the one thing that is great. I actually think he's really good in the role and I think he's generally a very good actor. He's also like for a guy who can play those kind of like pretty upper class boy, you know, man kind of thing. Um, but he can also be like, you know, Mad Max, he can also do like other stuff. I mean, he's been acting. Yeah, he can, he can play like a boy, right? handsome young guy and then he can also do sort of like absurd. Exactly. Absurd but um, yeah. what I like, I did like, I think he's good in it. He can, um, but his character, again, it's, I think there's some just little script things that kind of for this movie that kept me like, like when Tyler makes the meal, maybe this is like a weird foodie thing, but like when Tyler makes them was forced by uh Slowick to make the meal and he's like, okay, give me leeks, give me onions, give me butter. I'm like, Oh, he's going to make a bechamel sauce. <laughs> and, and it's just such a, I'm like, I don't believe You're a person. You're just bothered because that. you are Tyler. <laughs> no, I just, I just don't believe a guy who is willing to die for that meal would not be able to perform in that moment actually. And I actually think you could have him do no, no. a competent I, home I chef version and point. have Slowick insult it regardless. And then it'd be better. What did you think of uh, Hong Chao's like uh, assistant character the, to the the major D? Uh, she's pretty funny. Yeah, like yeah. what? So I Elsa. thought she was funny. Yeah, I think she's good, but um, I think she goes a little like at, at the end her her whole um, like getting angry at Margot. To me, I was like not sure about that. Well, I think, but you have to also see. So there's a few different like what I also like about the movie is that it. I thought that say Glass Onion is a one. And Aaron, we got we got let sorry we got let you get in in here, but um, to me Glass Onion is. A, is a one-dimensional critique, right? Um, going into it, I kind of expected a certain critique, and then it sort of fulfilled that. And I think that the menu is doing a few different things. It's not actually just a critique of the rich and the people who dine. It's also a critique of kitchen culture. It's all, So they're a cult. On the island, they're a cult. They're obsessed with the chef. They've committed their life to the kitchen in a way that people like, you know, in the kitchen, they're often like, it demands so much of you, it can't have dysfunction on the rest of your life. And then it, it also, um, to me, like there's elements of like, like the movie I would say as a reference point is also uh, the most dangerous game. Yeah, no. So it's like you get elements like that where it's like, you know, you go to this island. It's a little bit unclear what the setup is. But you the, but the, the key connection point is that in the back of your head, you kind of have an idea of where this is going to get dark. Right. And the most dangerous game, you're already starting to sense, hmm. There's something wrong with this count, and yeah, I bet he's been killing people. And here, right away, partly through the casting of Ray Fiennes, who I thought was like 
the only person who could play that character. He's great. Because of the, great. both the villain and the, the fastidious, right? It's, it's Gustav H combined with um, his villains. Aaron, what do you, what do you think? Cause I'm, I'm going off. Like I don't, this to me, this isn't like a, a perfect movie. I gave it an eight, uh, you know, not a nine or 10, but I'm still quite satisfied with it. And I would probably watch it again. You know, any, no, when, when watching it, Anton, I, I did think of the fact that like, I know you're very critical of horror movies that are more slasher, right? That always descend into that kind of violent ending of people running characters, acting stupid, um, just kind of pure, um, puerile thrills, which though I, I'd be very curious to see what you'd think of X and Pearl, because I think those are slasher movies that are have much more on their mind than them. And I know Anders just watched X and liked it. So <laughs> um, I do think the 1930s gothic horror movie by Universal is the best touch point for this. This is essentially like a version of the Black Hat or dangerous game or the raven or something but for nowadays where it's it's assaulting the upper crust of our society in very particular ways to our moment in the way that those movies are but it's also like it it plays off of the foreknowledge of you as a viewer and it's somewhat similar in to glass onion the way that we are actually positioned as above the characters or the so-called like victims in the in it right we have a we have a place because we're aware of a danger that they're not they're blinded to it, but it's deliberate in the sense because we're also aware of all the faults with these characters and the movie doesn't make excuses for it. It's like all these characters are awful and they will be punished and you will enjoy it. Like that's kind of part of the menu, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I will kill them and that is the delicious af- like taste. That is part of the experience. Um, and so I like, I, I've in recent years kind of, I've started to gravitate more towards these genre movies that just promise you something and then fulfill it. Yeah. And it does like, so I don't, I don't love this movie and it's, it's not like narratively that consistent because I do think the Margot character, like the movie invents a rule for how she lives that contradicts what we are actually told in the movie, which is you will die. Everybody's dying. Nobody's leaving. Everybody's dying. doesn't matter. You're on our side or their side, but we all die. But is that because she didn't come for the meal. No, but that doesn't matter. That's the thing. I know. He I know. But says that. He's like, you're going to be on our side or the other. I think that does sort of matter. No, but he's, he specifically addresses that earlier in the movie. What I'm saying is that the movie is very, very con- consistent about the rules and about the world and the tone, except for with regards to her character. And that's where I think the dissatisfaction comes from her. But I also don't think that she's all that interesting. So I don't really care because like Julian is the main character. Yeah. Like, or he's the central character. He's the one we're interested in. His, we get, he's the one we get a backstory out of. He's the one that we learn what his ticks are. He's the one who commands our attention. And I actually think Tyler's the hilarious. I kind of wish Tyler was around a little bit longer in it because he's the hilarious stand-in for us as viewers who are in awe. Of, the, the attitude that he takes towards the chef is kind of what we take towards the actors in the movie and a nice production. So, but it's also mirrors the, the, the Hell's Kitchen, the Gordon Ramsay thing like we admire the like the ruthlessness of him the but to me the answer this is where like it's the critique of the food culture thing kind of becomes muted a little bit for me because like honestly the making of the cheeseburger and him re uh, in making this cheeseburger i've you know uh, found my joy in creation again kind of is like super cliched actually like right like i mean like literally chef chef did it like seven eight years ago like yeah pig did so, it last year well yeah no yeah. it was sort of a pig moment right but but let me just say, actually just say though that what i like about this movie and i probably if i'm forced to put the two films against each other i pick the menu because i i just find it a little against it's glass a little, onion. yeah against glass onion i find it a little more fun i think it's uh but i have to accept it as being as you said a little bit loosey it's a little bit not really the real world it's like it's a contrived kind of thing it's not the and real in that sense at all. yeah and that way it like kind of works it's like a like an episode of black mirror or but as you said like an old universal horror film but yeah like you i think most dangerous game is the best thing and you know so so i enjoyed it on that level here here's my one point about about the part where he's sort of moved by the hamburger so again what i like is that he's still so he he spares her and i'll admit that that's the one point where like he both the film and the character the chef allow for that variation and you're right that it, it there is some fudging of the rules right 
and it doesn't, it's not as satisfying on the sort of um, emotional character sense as a movie like pig, which goes through all sorts of genres and then arrives at this like magical moment of like the power of cooking for people. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't fully earn that moment, but I think what's valuable about that is that I actually, because again, I don't think that this is a movie that's just a satire of the rich It's just a satire of like, restaurants and stuff because the other thing is like i think the value of that scene is that the movie wants us to see how um the restaurant culture has been um degraded in a sense and that's what like slowick is reacting to in some sense but at the same time there's still value in it and it's even in the way that the the film itself is interested in the plating and the 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 food he serves up and the concept of each dish that that's not in that's not an afterthought in the film and again i appreciate that and for me the him cooking a hamburger that i'm sorry a cheeseburger that is just satisfying kind of is there to partly show that the movie's not a rejection of like of dining like it's not it's not saying that all that restaurant stuff is just bullshit no it's saying that what that restaurant stuff has become has all that a bunch of that bullshit and he's like trying to correct that because then it's also like you know to me it's a bit of it's also one of these kind of like uh it's weirdly a little bit of uh falling down even like they live in the sense of like it's one of these also like kind of like uh social critique revenge movies where it's like it's it's angry about something and it's gonna like take people down to sort of correct it i'm the bad guy yeah How'd that happen? I did everything they told me to. Like, like there, it actually sort of commits to this idea that, like, like Chef Slowick's, like, you know, like he has all these reasons why he's like pissed and he's done, and he's like, I'm, and we actually sort of, we sort of sympathize with him once we sort of, like, he could have just been this psycho, right? No, they have but to we give start him motivation. to sympathize with him when we understand what he's doing. Well, it's because we like him more than we like the character. Yes, yes. And your point earlier, Aaron, also puts this... Uh, the last thing I'll just say, and I'll shut up. Um, you were right in the keynote to bring up the COVID pandemic and the, re- and the redistribution of wealth upwards because that's another commonality between these two films we've looked at, right? Uh, the pandemic setting. And, you know, so, like, that's when, right, they, could, they couldn't make it through COVID, um, the shutdowns, and that's when the the VC the, guy, the angel, comes in. the angel investor, came in, scooped up things. Like so, again, that context is there for this sort of all the wealth stuff. Yeah, and I actually think the the ruthlessness towards the other characters and the way that it positioned, like, so if we're going to take Miles Braun in Glass Onion as the villain of one, and we take Julian uh, Julian Slowick in this this one, like Miles Braun, there's nothing we like about him except for the fact that he's played by Edward Norton. That's it. You're right. And if it could have been recast, we'd have nothing to like. <laughs> exactly. But but Ray Fiennes as Julian, we admire. We admire his meticulousness. We admire his carrying out of his plan. We admire how eloquent he is in discussing the concepts. We might think he's a monster, but we also see how repugnant these other individuals are and ultimately take some satisfaction dispatching them. And that's a classic kind of horror concept, right? Which is if a movie a movie has kind of two options with horror, if it's going to be dispatching the characters, it can make you buy into the characters so that you are saddened when they die or it can show how much of awful people they are. So you get a little bit of a thrill aligning you with the killer. Right. So then it gives that extra edge to it. And in Glass Onion, all the other characters are insufferable, except for Benoit and and the Janelle Monáe character. But like all the others are pretty insufferable. But the movie at the end is like, well, they're not as bad as Miles. So they can kind of team up with Benoit at the end and they can break the glass and we'll give them a pass because there's actually a bigger bad than these little bads. And the menu is like. A more honest, like a more honest satire in my mind of Glass Onion would be one where all those characters go down with Miles. The whole thing burns yeah. down. Because they're all culpable. Like all their lives are ruined. Power. All their lives are ruined. Not just his. But they're all culpable all in his power. Yeah. Exactly. And they all benefited from it and they've done nothing to stop it. But that's where the that's where Glass Onion is. Like, let's just, I would just say it's, it's unfair to the character of Miles Braun because one, it goes out of its way to to maintain that somehow Miles Braun achieves all this with with zero talent. Yeah. It's not that just that he's an asshole and a bad person. No, no, he's a stand-in for Elon Musk and everyone hates Elon right now. Yeah. And even if I find Elon insufferable, 
And even if I'm skeptical about certain things about Tesla, et cetera, I have to admit he's not a complete idiot. And things like uh, SpaceX are actually really cool. And Twitter hasn't uh, collapsed yet. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Yeah, just stay off Twitter. Predicted. But the um, I want the interesting thing to compare for me, going back to what you said about how much we like Ray Fiennes in this film as the villain, is actually these two films act as really interesting companion pieces as these like showcases for like Fiennes and Craig, right? Uh, in, in different ways. And I think uh, this really leans into fine. The two co-stars. It's M and, and Bond. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I, I just think that, like, as much as I enjoy Benoit Blanc, there's a bit of, a, like, a gag about the character. Like, yeah. you know, this British guy doing this foghorn leg on accent, you know. I'll say, I'll say. Did you, there, uh, I think you said Blanc. I think you said Benoit Blanc. And I was like, <laughs> that, you know, but, like, that actually there's something to that like the blanc is blank right like there's no actually less of he's he's more of like a paper figure of of uh he's affectations yes yes he is he's pure affectation of detective and and likewise though julian is you know a type he's a the sort of gordon ramsay type i think that fines brings enough of his his own expertise in various roles as you pointed out anton his fastidiousness his uh, but also his comic timing right and that's the thing is in certain aspects, the menu, as much as like people would say, it's maybe more of a you know thriller than uh, Glass Onion. It's actually very funny in moments too. I thought, I, yeah, well, it's I a black it comedy. One, yeah, it's one of the more funny movies I've watched in a lot in a while. Like I, I laughed a lot, and it makes me curious. Actually, I, I've criticized the fact that I, I think like most many people outside of Twitter don't watch it, but uh, the fact that Mark Mylod and producers McKay and Farrell also do Succession. Which is also like a critique of media billionaires. I'm like, yeah, which I haven't watched. Check that out. I haven't watched it either. But I just don't watch a lot of TV. But in terms of a black comedy that actually lives up to it, like the whole moment where the, you know, the one um, cook, I think he's the sous chef, yeah, blows his brains out. Right, like the fact that it 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 leads up to that, and a lot of films would deflate that. We'd be like, okay, you know, just before he shoots himself, he'd be like, okay, now you've learned your lesson, and sort of like send him aside. But it just like goes through it the whole thing and. It's like, it's funny. It's like darkly funny, the whole thing. Like like me at his age, Jeremy has forsaken everything to achieve his goals. Like mine, his life is, is pressure. Pressure to put out the best food in the world. And even when all goes right and the food is perfect and the customers are happy and the critics are too, there is no way to avoid the mess. The mess you make of your life, of your body, of your sanity, by giving everything you have to pleasing people, you will never know. Also, the the, the VC guys. <laughs> yeah, those guys are sufferable. The whole so thing. You told him it was my birthday. Seemed like a good joke. <laughs> like, <laughs> um. And like John Leguizamo was so pathetic as the, the washed <laughs> yeah. up actor. And he's like, people like my movie. <laughs> it's like, like I, I, and, everything. and he just, but the idea of like your attitude towards art is, is offensive to me. Like that's your sin. It's oh. like, you don't take your own job seriously. <laughs> Talking about a great moment. The factory, like he invited him because he saw that movie and he was so offended by it. <laughs> yeah. It was one day like, off. Yeah. By one day off of the week. It completely <laughs> ruined. <laughs> Ray Fiennes has a, um, you know, he's got such a distinctive look, which has obviously been used in a variety of roles, not mostly his villain roles like Voldemort, the kind of gaunt face and serpentine stare and stuff. But he has an extremely kind of thin mouth, right? And he knows how to use <laughs> it. So no, like he's got no lips yeah, almost, right? Yeah. But very like pointed mouth. And he has what I would say is a very villainous smile. Which he uses, he actually uses in Schindler's List a lot. It's I don't yeah, necessarily yeah. want to get into the comparison with this, but <laughs> no. So all the times in the movie when he is smiling, it is so um, sinister. Like it, it is like a death knell for whoever he's smiling towards because it's there is a knowing repulsion that he only expresses through being like ah, a human, like a human response to it, which is the smile. But it's just his hatred is so intense. And the whole scene right right after Tyler makes the meal is kind of like the perfect moment with it. He's like, it's very, it's very bad. 
<laughs> the that I like I actually like Ray Fiennes in some of his more comedic roles. Like obviously Grand Budapest Hotel, yeah. but well, also great, his his small role in Hail Caesar. Right? He's so good in that Boss. one yeah. little role. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I watched that recently, but now sorry, it just popped out of my mind. Would that the word trippingly? Would that it were so sample? He's the he's the director. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> yeah, he has the double. He has the double name. What is it again? It's like Lawrence Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence Lawrence. It's like or, oh, sorry, Mister Lawrence. Lawrence. It's okay. You can call me Lawrence. <laughs> it's like what? no, you sorry. can call me Lawrence. But I thought you're Mister. Christian, Christian names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's so good at that. Like I want a whole movie about Lawrence Lawrence. All right, let's try this. Your line. Just say it as I said. Say your line exactly as I'm about to. Just as I'm about to do. Sure. Okay. Would the tattoo so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say tattoo? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would the tattoo so simple? Would the tattoo so simple? Would the tattoo so simple? Would the would the tattoo so simple? Watch my mouth. Would the tattoo so simple? Would the tattoo so simple? Keep your head still. Would the tattoo so simple? Would the detour so simple? I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lawrence. Lawrence? Hmm? I thought a minute ago it was Lawrence. No, we can use Christian names, my good dear boy. Lawrence is fine, just as I called you Hobie. Okay. So, would the detour so simple? We almost need to do it, like, at some point. When I watch it again, sorry, side note, but you're, like, talk about an underrated Coen Brothers movie. It's It is, I think. It's, it's it, so it good. Is. In part because it's also like a, com- a more comedic and lighthearted companion to things like, uh, obviously, um, uh, Barton Fink. Yeah. I feel like it's the, it is, I feel like it's the last like real Coen's movie because obviously they made Ballad of Buster Shreds after, but it was streaming and it's anthology. So this feels like, it feels like the last actual brothers working together one. Yeah. Like the menu doesn't, I don't know. It, I think it's also that it's, it has slightly mod- more modest ambitions and it might, that might be a me being a sucker for um, not being a sucker, but being like mo- um, manipulated by marketing campaigns. Like glass onion was put out, not just as a like fun holiday holiday fair, but also as a prestige follow up to this acclaimed brilliant subversion of the whodunit. Well, me- the menu is just like genre fair with good actors. But yeah, no, I, I agree. There's something about a movie that has, more modest ambitions and succeeding. But at, at the same time, I think there's a, uh, there's something to movies that swing big and miss, which I kind of enjoy. Like, I'm definitely a fan of that. Wait well, just you wait until you watch Babylon. And wait till you see some a couple of the films on my uh, top 10 list. Is it swing big and miss, or is it like you get like a single? No, but like that run. you don't always hit it. Like, yeah, it so doesn't I have would to be say perfect. Like a, movie like, a movie like Babylon takes a massive, massive swing in the last scene, and you're like, oh, <laughs> what are you trying here? And then it, you're like, you did not connect on that, really. <laughs> but I actually don't think Glass Onion is super ambitious, actually. <laughs> and no. it doesn't. It's just probably also the fact that it's like half hour longer than the menu is part of it. Yeah, yeah it's not crisp enough. Menu's tight. Yep. It's efficient. But like, I will be ta- thinking about the menu in a month or two. Maybe not a ton, but um, I'll put it alongside like Beast, the Idris Elba fights a lion <laughs> movie is a movie where I'm like, I'm just satisfied watching. I'm like, yeah, that was a good time. I think they'll probably, if anything, gives, I think there's some memes of the menu going around that hopefully they'll have some shelf life. But likewise, I think Daniel Craig is also actually pretty good in comedic roles. So I'm happy to see both of them take on roles that are a little bit like. It's a good you know, turn. It's a, like, a it's, it's, funny. Yeah. it's a good choice for him to do something um, like. So turning in a different direction, but having the framework to be able to sort of do a few of these does like Craig sort of like have. So um, I saw I saw these comments online. A lot of people made these comments, whether in reviews or just tweets or whatnot. And it was like, it's so nice to see Daniel Craig in a role he likes. And I'm like, yeah, but just wait till three films down the line where he becomes so tortured and hates playing Benoit Blanc that he has to manufacture his death in the final film. And it has to be such a grand thing that he destroys the franchise so Ryan Johnson can never make another. <laughs> no, no, but seriously, like when people are like, oh, it's so nice. He's so tortured. No, it's like it's so to- he's so tortured as Bond. And you're like, you know, that was his choice to make Bond tortured. Bond is supposed to be fun. And the fact that he didn't have fun playing Bond is like kind of baffling to me. But. Let's just hope the next guy has fun with it. It's the sort of thing where you're like, I, I, I quite like Craig in the role, but you're right that um, lo- looking back probably on that era, you only have so much uh, you can do with, like if he's going to pursue the tortured angle. On yeah. Bond. yeah. 
No, it's just I, I find it ridiculous when somebody's like, they, they finally let Daniel Craig free. I'm like, all the decisions in Bond, he was a party to. He was a producer. He on. literally like, what are you talking about? was producer. Yeah, he didn't, <laughs> they didn't have a gun to his head. Like, you will be He got story credit and paid $50 million each movie. Like, I, I do think there is like this weird idea that like – somehow like we should feel bad for <laughs> daniel craig having been bond <laughs> like <laughs> come on like <laughs> i'm just sad we never got more Mikkel blomquist films with him so any final any final comments on sort of these films together well and now i felt like we maybe maybe we should have watched triangle of sadness and paired that in too because it does seem to be a thing in the air right now this like attack on the super rich have you seen it aaron no I don't really the Ruben Oslin films I've seen I don't like so I'm hesitant to watch it. But I mean you're right there's so much here like as we could also compare it to already like White Lotus, Succession, etc. Yeah. It's definitely fits the zeitgeist as they say, but um I also think these work really well as sort of like midwinter like just time fillers. <laughs> well, it's good to have something like to be honest like you know we'll get into some of the the awards fair, you know, but like it like it's it's sort of nice in January to also watch something that's just enjoyable and not just trying for Oscars or whatever. Not every podcast can be on the the giant prestige movie or just some like foreign art house film. No, it's fun to talk about uh, different things. Well, hopefully you had fun listening to it. Thanks for listening and catch you on the next episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>